welcome back to the Online Podcast. Today we got an old friend, journalist, used to be in the Navy, my boy Marcus in the building. What's up, bro? What's going on, man? It's been a minute, man. It's been, it's been a long time. Been about a year, I feel like, since we hung out, really. Yeah, I'm t- yeah. it's been a long yeah. time. How you been, man? Been good, man. Been good. How's the pandemic treating you, man? It's cool, man. I was working from home for a little bit, quit mm-hmm. that job. Now I'm working in a grocery store, so same old, same old. Same old, same old, man. How about you? Uh, now I'm working nice, working at UPS till uh class can be back you know in person we can't really learn uh can't really learn over the computer yeah so we're going to school we're going to school for? uh so i'm going to school for journalism okay uh mainly trying to be a sports journalist uh i was working with the battle hawks last year before uh the pandemic shut everything down so but uh yeah man once school gets back in i'll be back on my grind with that okay so what drew you to journalism uh really it was uh in the Navy, I was in the Navy for four years, uh, since 2015 to 2019. And um, now writing came to me just because telling stories about, or while you're in the Navy, one of the things that you do, because you really don't have your phone, you don't have too much to distract you, is you're really just sitting around with all these people telling stories, right? And like one of my favorite things to do is, you know, go home and, or go to work, tell stories about my friends back home. And then vice versa, come home, tell stories about my friends in the Navy, right? Yeah. And like kind of that sort of holding court, talking to everybody, telling all these stories that, you know, just kind of spreading the word, whatever experience you may intake hearing from someone else, you impart on something else. Mm-hmm. So I needed really an outlet for all that. You know, I couldn't just walk around being like, hey, Austin, you know, let me tell you this. Yeah. Right? Because I just thought of, I had this thought and it inspired me to do this, right? Rather, you just tell people stories in words, really, and give it out to the public and then let people find it where they need to or when they need to. And then being able to look back on it and, you know, kind of revisit it if you need inspiration. Was the Battlehawks your first journalism gig? A hundred percent. Like, I was uh, not classically trained at all. <laughs> it was uh, mainly Battlehawks were kicking off and, you know, I wanted to get involved with the XFL however I could. I wanted to get involved with the XFL from like the ground floor because I feel it was the new thing around here. It was all home built. We got a hell of a fan base. Yeah, man. And it felt really like this small community and trying to make my way into that community, into something, you know, parlaying it into, you know, being able to go to the games, being able to be around like all these players and stuff like that. It was kind of that that sports fix that I was missing, you know, when a, like, you know, a high school athlete gets out and now you're just like, all right, I got all this competitive juice, nowhere to put it. Yeah. And, um, now, and I saw this website, xflnewshub.com. That was kind of the biggest XFL forum, really. It wasn't, you know, classically trained journalists or something like that. It's mainly guys with full-time jobs, but, you know, had this passion for writing about football. Yeah. And, they didn't have a Battlehawks rider. I, I saw they had a team for, or they had a guy for every other team except the Battlehawks. And I emailed their editor asking, you know, like, hey, you know, I maybe I could send you some samples. I don't have anything published online or anything like that, but I could show you maybe what I can do. Get no response. I email them again a couple of days later. Still no response. You were hungry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man. And it ended up me being just going into a Word document and I would write something up. And I would send it to him. And I did that for like five straight days, like <laughs> with Dude. no with no response. And then he was finally like, okay, okay, here's like access to the site, whatever, whatever. 
And it was that easy. That's all it took. It it took like a week of me just badgering this dude that didn't really want to listen to me. That's how so many success stories yeah. go. And next thing you know, I had, I don't really want to brag about it, but I had like the most clicks of the writers on that site. And it was all me kind of mimicking what I thought I a sports journalist should be. And then as I wrote a few more, you know, you start to find your own voice. And because of that, I was able to parlay that into working with the XFL podcast that I work with now, which is the uh, STL XFL, XFL STL talk show. And um, now I'm just trying to stick with it till the XFL comes back. Just trying to hold over, you know, tread water for a little bit. So how long were you writing? For the the whole season? I wrote for... Well, really, the whole season would only be four games, but yeah, That's so sad. I cover four games, and then you know XFL shut down. But uh, nah, man, it's it was one of those things where it was a really good learning experience for me, trying to find you know that sort of that pathway into what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so now that it's funny that I parlayed into the producing for the XFL podcast, and now I found kind of what I really want to do is that production side of things not so much the content as much as like i do enjoy writing recapping talking to players having interviews all that stuff but i really found my passion in like the production side of things like i enjoy not so much being the guy doing the opinion making but making sure that you know everything's palatable you know trying to make sure there's a good video feed make sure audio levels are good make sure you know, I can market it, advertising, all that type of stuff. That's sort of the, okay. yeah, not so much being behind the camera. Okay, that's dope, man. Yeah. That's dope. You got a, you got a future in it. That's what I'm hoping for. Man. If if you was a sport sports journalist, what city would you want to live in? <sighs> what team would you want to cover? Let's let's do it like that. Team I want to cover is the Raiders, just because I'm a huge Raiders fan. I always have. Been. How you feel about them moving to Las Vegas? I mean, look, <laughs> I got over it. I, I was in mourning for a bit. I was thinking, like, you know, I'm not going to be any fan but a Raider fan, like all this stuff. And then they left, and I was like, well, it's a little too late to jump on bandwagons for a good team. I don't want to go relearn a new team, yeah. like history and all that. And so I had to ride with them. My dad was still going with them. My grandpa was still going with them. So I was like, all right, I at least got a cave and, you know, see what Vegas is all about. I felt some type of way they left just because mm-hmm. Oakland had that fan base. Like, yeah, and they still do, for real. Like, it's not like... I don't know too many people still in Oakland. Like, I was just there on Thanksgiving. I don't know too many people in Oakland that are, like, pissed off at the Raiders for real. I think everybody knew the Oakland Coliseum was a dump. For Like, come on, man. It's like you walk to the stadium, like, and there's, like, this tunnel with these cages over the top, bro, and it looks like a birdcage the whole <laughs> walk. It's, like, the most dangerous place to be <laughs> in Oakland on a Sunday, not wearing a, not wearing a Raider jersey. Didn't the baseball team play there too, though? Mm, baseball team still plays there. The athletics? Mm-hmm. So they play in the same dump that the Raiders played in. Yeah. Damn. That's why you see in like August, like during the preseason games, how they got the baseball diamond in the middle of the football field mm-hmm. still. Yeah. Huh. You seen anybody get fucked up at a game? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably about every game. They just be fighting? Yeah, man. My first, my first ever Raider game I went to, it was a Chiefs game, like second week of the season. I was probably like six years old. I watched a dude get knocked out, and then they left his head like in the toilet, like where. It, but it's like the trough toilets, you know what I'm saying? Where they put like the ice cubes and stuff in there. There's like not a urinal; it's like a communal urinal, and they just oh. left him. Oh, Raiders games are vicious, man. Was he like an opposing fan, or was he? Oh yeah, he's a Chiefs fan. Okay, yeah. See. 
<laughs> Damn, that's how dangerous, boy. Yeah, bro. Man, it's so cool. You're a journalist. Like, have you always been a good writer? Is this? I mean, it's so I used to have a really bad stutter as a kid, and so I got sent to speech class, and so it was uh, one of those things where I had to learn to kind of slow myself down, and I try to use words that uh, don't sound so repetitive. I guess I run into and, that problem, yeah. And my dad was a big stickler on the fact that if you don't speak well, then no one's gonna take you seriously. So like me walking around with a stutter and like you know a California accent all day long doesn't make me sound too smart. <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I went to speech classes and uh, had to learn a lot or worked a lot on my public speaking and things that you know were sources of anxiety for me and. I guess that's kind of how I turned to uh, the writing side or enjoying writing and being good at writing was because uh, the thoughts that seemed so mumbled up in my head were way more easy to put down. And so uh, writing comes naturally to me. Storytelling comes naturally to me, I guess. You said this got started when you were in the Navy, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the actual acting on that, acting on, you know, like, okay, you can write something down or... uh, like tell a story on paper and now maybe put that out for other people to see, not so much just myself. Like I would enjoy, I used to actually like kind of like write stories out or like write little plots out like to myself and then never share them with anybody. And so getting over that fear of like, okay, like I got to put my content out here, put my content out there, put my opinion out there for really everybody to see and like disagree with. Um, That was, that all started really after I got out of the Navy. Okay. How long were you in the Navy? I was in the Navy for four years. Okay. What was your role? Like, what'd you do? Uh, I was an aviation boatswain mate handler. So basically what that means is like, you ever see the guys on like uh, the commercials or like on Top Gun or something that do like, that do the point and like launch the jet off the... Oh, so you guy in the jet? Yeah. Okay. Like, that, that's pretty much what I did. And uh, there's like different variations of that. Like there's like the firefighting side of things, like aircraft firefighting, uh, crash rescue, all that type of stuff that all falls under that one job. But my job was really, like, on the flight deck side. What what led you to join the Navy? Uh, so both my parents were in the Navy when uh-huh. I was a kid. They had me young. They got married early. And I spent really my early time of my life being in California while my mom and dad were still in the military. And uh, I got out of high school, was going to go to Missouri State, or did go to Missouri State, went for a semester, failed horribly. <laughs> you turn it up yeah yeah a little too much and then i came home and that's actually when i started linking up with you for the first time yeah because uh you and zach were at Lindenwood, mm-hmm. and uh i remember telling you guys that i was going to join the navy and then everybody was like yeah but are you really going to join the navy and so it but what it came down to was i wasn't ready for college at all they i was the kid in high school who snuck by well enough on like test scores or whatever like, I think my GPA when I graduated was like a 2.8, but I had a 29 on my ACT. <laughs> so uh, that's how I got into most state. And um, Damn. yeah, by the time I got there, I was just immature. I had no study habits. I had no drive. I went there as a business major, didn't even know what I wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. I, I had no real plan or structure in my life. And so I came home uh really just kicked it with you guys just like just being that dude that went back to his hometown and you know hung out with the kids that were actually doing stuff (laughs) 
and uh, did that for about six months, man, before I went to Great Lakes in April, April of 2015. Went to Great Lakes for a boot camp. We're going to get back to the Navy, but let's mm-hmm. talk about that. You said that you weren't ready for college. Mm-hmm. And was it like your decision to drop out or did your parents say uh, No, it was my parents' decision that I was going to drop out because uh, I was, you know, lucky enough to have my mom who was in a position to be able to actually pay for my school. Like I would, I didn't even have to take out loans. Oh, that's amazing. Like that's how easy I had it, mm-hmm. right? And because of that, like I took everything for granted. I took the fact that my mom was going to send me money while I was gone and I didn't have to work. I didn't have to do nothing but sit around and literally just go to class. That was my only job was to go to class. And I still couldn't do that. And so because of that, you know, when it comes time for finals to come around, bro, you're not prepared for none of this. Like everybody's been really studying all year. Like while people are up in the library till like, you know, midnight, one in the morning. What are you doing, bro? You're playing video games. Bro, when Call of Duty Ghost came out, I didn't go to school for a week. I didn't go to class for a week. Damn, dude. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's where I was at mentally. Like, I was so immature. And so when, you know, I come home and I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, damn. Well, I kind of wasted every opportunity I had. And the only option really was, you know, I look at my parents. My mom got her degree after the Navy. Went there, like, straight out of high school. Both my parents left for the Navy at 17. They had to get parents' waivers to even join. Damn. And so, yeah, I looked like. What I are remember, the odds of that though? Like, did right. they know each other before they went to the Navy? No, my but dad. But they both have. The- my dad was actually living in Germany at the time oh. because my grandpa was stationed there. So my dad went to high school in Germany and then left. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And my mom is uh, from New Melly. Uh, yeah, just like out in the sticks by O'Fallon. So your dad was born in Germany. No, my dad was my dad was an army brat. So my grandpa was moving all over the place. And so my grandpa was stationed in Germany at the time. And I think he spent his early life in the States. And then his high school years, he was in Germany. You really got military in your family. Oh, yeah. Big time. That's why that idea wasn't so foreign to me. Like, I know plenty of people that I tell that story and they're like, oh, I would never think about going to the military. But I was like, it always seemed like it was in the back of my head as something I could do if I really needed to. Like, military is always higher. If you got no direction in life, I promise they'll give you a purpose. I mean, this isn't like my PSA to go join because, I mean, shit, I got out <laughs> after my first contract. But, uh, nah, man, it definitely, it was something I needed. It was something I needed to level myself out because I was just wilding. Like, you you knew me back then, bro. I wasn't really doing much. Yeah. Like, I would I would show up. I'd want to get drunk on the weekends and then fuck around all week. Like, and just kind of kick it at home and work my minimum wage job I was working at the time and then don't do anything else. And that's just not sustainable, really. But I didn't, I wasn't thinking that way when I was 18, 19. I was thinking, oh, shit, I got money in my pocket. What do I need to save this for? Did you feel pressure to go to college after? A hundred percent. It was, uh, it was not to like, and there's not a knock on my mom to be like this or my dad too, but both my parents were like, oh yeah, college isn't optional. Like you're going, mm-hmm. which I mean, sounds good. And can work for a lot of people. But for me, it was just one of those things where my goal was to get to college. And, okay, I got to college. Now, now I did it. I don't have to do anything else. Like, everything else will come as easy as it did in high school. And that just wasn't the case. So, like, my whole thing was... Wow, it's actually a little therapy session. Now that I think about it, bro. But, <laughs> but uh, no, nah, it was really... 
the goal was getting there. The goal was not succeeding when I got there. And so, like, when I finally got accepted into Mizzou and Most State, I chose Most State because I knew in my head, I'm like, I'm not going to get shit done in Mizzou. Like, <laughs> which now in hindsight, I definitely wouldn't have got shit done in Mizzou. Yeah. But, um, no, I wanted somewhere that was, you know, decently far away enough that, you know, I wasn't so connected to home. But a place that I could still travel if I needed to. Mm-hmm. And then all that ended up being was, like, you know, I was coming home every other week. And just because I was so homesick and just so used to being back in that, like, easy little world where I didn't have to, you know, really try hard or, like, do anything really difficult for myself. And joining the Navy was one of those big things where, you know, there is no backup plan now. Like, there's that feeling you get when you get to boot camp and you do, like, all that first night stuff and you're just like, oh, my God, like, yo, there's really no way out of this. I just kind of got to do this right now. And so, like, I'm the type of person that I work well when I take away my safety net. And so me having the safety net of being home just wasn't working for me at the time. It's funny you say that. Like, that's part of the reason I moved out. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have my back against the wall for once in life Mm -hmm. to know that, like, I got to do this. Mm Mm-hmm. It's almost like a weird survivor's remorse feeling when you're like, well, I had this compared to like the kids I grew up with in California. Like if I would have stayed in California, God knows what I would have been doing if I didn't come out here, you know. But I mean, where you look at those kids and the work that they had to put in to get, you know, even with where I was, you know what I mean? And like taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans because California schools are so expensive. And I'm out here, I'm not gonna have to pay a single student loan. Well, now the Navy's gonna make sure I don't have to pay student loans, which is nice. But (laughs) but uh, I didn't have to pay like any money really, like to even go to college. All I had to do was get there and succeed, and I couldn't even do that. And it was one of those things that you know starts fucking with you when you get back, and. You know, as much as I loved kicking it with you guys every day, y'all were in college doing shit. Like, what was I doing? Yeah, the, the duality of it. Mm-hmm. Now, we're kicking it, but when mm-hmm. you leave. When you leave, you're going to study. When I leave, I'm going home to play 2K till 4 in the morning, wake up at noon. Yeah. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, eventually that starts eating at you. And I'm sure that happened to a lot of people in the pandemic this year. I know it happened to me a little bit. The suicide rate definitely mm-hmm. went up. Yeah. But um, something I've learned in talking to people is, like, People who graduate high school, they do feel pressured to go to college. When there's, I've, I'm learning there's so many different alternatives yes, to going to college. Absolutely. And the thing is, if you go to college and you're not ready for it, that's thousands of thousands of dollars that you have to pay for. And it's just like sometimes some people aren't ready for it. Like you said, you were immature when you first went. Yeah. So I don't think you should be like there's trade schools. There's the military. Like, mm-hmm. The military helps you. And there's just some jobs you don't need a degree for. Like Yeah. That's like and there's like union jobs like you all you have to do is you just learn a trade you just become an apprentice and you can learn a trade you can make plenty of money not with a college or without a college education but one of the things i feel like is the issue now or for this younger generation in general is the thought that you have to go to college to succeed period mm-hmm. like there's no success outside of that like obviously you're you went to college yeah but how but you can still look back and see like how many different ways you could have gone, right? Yeah, definitely. But as a high school kid, did you think that way? Not at all. Exactly. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Like, I was so conditioned that like college is what I needed to do. There was no like 
Like, if I would have gone, if someone would have told me about what the military could have done for me, I would have gone straight out of high school without even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But because I was so, or because I was told so many times that I needed to, needed to go to college, like needed this education, just go to college, just major in business, you figure the rest out later. Like, all right, cool. Now I'm here with no direction. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm not motivated to really do shit outside of the fact that I don't want to get yelled at by my mom about my grades. Yeah. You know, and that's not enough of a, you know, deterrent for me to just not sit around and enjoy this freedom I've never had before. Hmm. But I mean, like, and this isn't me just like shitting on college either. Like, yeah. also, it, it helps out a ton of people and it, like, it puts your foot in the door so many places. Like, there's plenty of obstacles I face now where I'm like, well, I feel like I could learn that job. And they're like, yeah, but the other guy applying for you or other guy applying for it also has a bachelor's. What do you have? You're a veteran. Like, okay, that, yeah, that puts you in. But there's college education up here still. The crazy thing about the college degree is every corporate job I've had, mm. they train you on how to do the job. And with the training, mm. they teach you to where anyone who pays attention to the training can do the job. Uh, so the college degree just like gives you an advantage over this group of people. Right. But at the same time, it's really... So I, I put it to you this way, right? So I would venture to say probably 75% of the military is 25 and under. Like, I'd say, yeah, that's about right. And ah, maybe maybe not 75, but a great majority of it is under 25. All you have to do to get into the military is take a test called the ASVAB, right? And I would say... 50 is probably the average score. It's 0 to 100. And 50 is about the average score. If you get above 50, the amount of jobs that you can do in the military that you would look at and, like, for instance, my job, right? My job, I work with, you know, running aircraft jets with bombs on them, launching and recovering them all day long, like, up to, like, probably 16 hours a day. All I need is a 35 on my ASVAB to do that job. Hmm. So, like, when you put it in perspective, like, the on-the-job training that you did in the military. Like, there's no... Like, yeah, you go to a school before you go to your first command. And, like, you actually learn, your, like, your job from a technical perspective. But you don't do it till you get there. Right? All it takes is, like, a couple months of... Like, I could take you right now. You don't know nothing about the military. In a month and a half, I could have you doing the job I did. Hmm. In a month and a half. Just by taking you out there and showing you how to do it. But you know nothing about it right now. So that's where like my disconnect is, where I'm like, why you got to learn something for four years to even get in the field when like you have no idea, like un unless there's something I don't know about, like <laughs> you got no idea anything really about the Navy. Yeah. But I could have you not proficient, but knowledgeable enough that I could leave you alone to do that job in like a month and a half. This job working with like billion dollar aircraft and like you know, weapons and, like, running engines and all these different hazards, right? And to prove it to you, I work with plenty of dumb motherfuckers in the military, but I still trust them to do their job. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, people I wouldn't, like, if I had a kid, I wouldn't let that guy watch my kid, but I'll let him watch this aircraft. So when you were in the Navy, what was that experience like? I mean, it's what it, the way I always say it is... I'm incredibly thankful that I did it and I'm glad I did it, but I'll never do it again. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's uh it was definitely a learning experience. Um I'm a better person for it. I'm a more mature person for it for sure. Um 
but one of the things that I learned the most about it was to stop what I always, I love the term majoring in minor things. And so, for instance, like not being so upset at shit that doesn't really affect it. Like, would I still be mad about this shit tomorrow when I woke up? Am I still going to think about this tomorrow? All right, cool. Then it's not really like something I need to worry about. If, you know, my chief gets in my face, starts screaming at me, calling me this and that over something that was out of my control. Why am I going to let that, like, you know, yeah, still affect me later in the day when I'm like, well, bro, he's not even thinking about it anymore. <laughs> if he's not thinking about it, what the fuck I got to think about it? Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just like that patience thing. My bullshit tolerance has gone up so much. Like, <laughs> like being able to deal with stress and stuff like that. I would say that's the biggest thing that I could take away from it is being able to deal with stressful situations in a calm way. I would say. What led to that? Um, Really a lot of things. Like, And it really comes down to this deployment I had in 2016, which is, I would say would be the turning point of me turning into like, not like there was this huge metamorphosis, but I would say I left that as still like the college dropout kid that was, you know, lazy as fuck, didn't really want, like, wasn't really motivated to do anything. And then I came back and I'm probably more toward the person I am now, which was what, that was in 2016, five years later. I would say that's the closest I got to like this point. And I mean... To put a long story short, it was six months in the summer off the coast of Libya. So it's hot as shit every day, like <laughs> working long ass hours, you know, working from dark to dark. So it'd be dark when we got up and be dark when we left. And I don't know. It was just one of those things that built such like a, if you can get through this, like you can do pretty much anything. Like the whole, I think. We were out for like three straight months without a port call at one point. So waking up doing your job every day for three months, going to sleep in the same place. <laughs> like it's one of those things where you get this sort of like mental fortitude of, all right, I'm so comfortable being in uncomfortability. Like, uh, yeah, I really don't want to do this, but I so have to do this. So I could put myself in a place mentally where like I don't want to do something now. But I know, I'm like, well, I did that one shitty thing for this for this long. Like, what's this? You know what I mean? I'm speaking in generalities, but it's like, you get what I'm saying. Where it's, uh, I don't know. And it's also where I learned, like, the value of leadership for the first time, really. Because that was the first, we went on that deployment. I had been out for maybe a month at a time at the most before we did that. And... I was in my first real leadership sort of position. At the time, I would say I would be the level of like an assistant manager by the time by the time I left. And I came back about a manager. Having to be able to coach people through the same feelings that you're having when it comes to like stresses or like, like plenty of guys, you know, married with kids, right? You're gone for six months. That That takes a toll on you no matter what. You're not able to, like, there's no phone signal, so you can't FaceTime your family. So, like, people are having kids. People's wives are divorcing them while we're on deployment. 
you know, people's wives are cheating on them or vice versa. People's husbands are cheating on them, like all this stuff. And you deal with like those own thoughts in your head and those like, you know, rumors that you might hear because, you know, so-and-so hits you with this Facebook message and you're out here. There's nothing you can do about it. Like, you know what I mean? And so you learn to manage all those feelings, but also you have to manage your own feelings. But people are also looking to you to be like, all right, how do I handle this? You gotta. You can't be like, hey, man, it's my first deployment, too. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I really had to become an adult for the first time, where I had to be the voice of reason in the room rather than be the dude that could sit in the back and laugh and make jokes, you know? And granted, that's fine, and I still like doing it, but <laughs> I couldn't do it at that point anymore. And so I think that's really what matured me more than anything. Wow. What was the feeling like of you being, you know, the college dropout in the boat taking off the ship taking off what was that first night like uh so i'll give you the first night of boot camp and i'll give you the first night of deployment so <laughs> first night of boot camp uh well i should really say second night because the first night you don't sleep so they drop you off on a bus um in our case so it's in great lakes which is like probably 45 minutes away from chicago okay and I went to April, so it's still mad cold. <laughs> and uh, but uh, you get off this bus and you walk into like first thing you see is like this big thing that just says United States Navy Recruit Training Aww. Command on the uh, on the front door, and you're walking through. And at this point, everybody's already yelling at you as soon as you're off the bus. And so me being like, really, the best people to acclimate to that sort of thing are like athletes, right? And, like, I had two military parents, so I also knew kind of what I was getting into. So I wasn't, like, really that shook. I kind of expected it to happen. But you're already starting to see people fold, like, as soon as that starts happening. Where they're like, all right, stand on this fucking, like, stand on these footprints right here. And there's, like, these little yellow footprints. And you would stand there, and then one person would move off that much. And then they're on you. They're like, no, you need to follow these little details, like, to a T, right? Like, walk on this side of passageway, or you call it P-way. And walk on this side of the P-way. You can't stray from this one very strict thing. If you can't follow this one strict thing, we're on your ass. And they would do that to you all night, and they just had you, like, you know, you're picking up your bags, uh, you're packing everything that you came with, you put in a box and you mail home, and they give you everything. They give you underwear, socks, toothpaste, toothbrush, all that stuff. Everything the government gives you, everything that's on your person, that's civilian clothes, gone. I may be wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that, like, the military trains you to, like, just disconnect and become like 100 100 have you seen someone come home and not be able to reconnect yes and that's a thing that a lot of people don't understand that just about every veteran deals with not just veterans of combat and that's not to say that like combat veterans deal with a different type of like reconnecting i feel like when they come home because you're going from like an incredibly high stress environment and coming home, but it's uh all right here. The best way I can put it is there's a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. And he did this documentary um embedded with these or I think it was Army, but they were embedded in this forward operating base in uh I think it was Afghanistan. And he was talking about that sort of like tribe mentality, that communal mentality of where Everyone gets everyone's jokes, right? Everybody knows the exact beats for everybody. Everybody, I like, I would know, 
what would piss you off by hearing someone else say it to you? I'd be like, okay, he's going to get upset because he has this in his past and he thinks about this. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sort of unspoken trust. Like I would trust that guy with anything without having to think about it. And then you come home and you kind of see that not everybody has as tight a bond as you had with that person. And you try to connect with like another civilian on that level. And they kind of don't get why you're trying to be too deep with them at that point. Like that's kind of where a lot of people get that disconnect is because they're looking for that sort of family feeling with their friends again. And some friends may have that, but a lot of people don't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But uh, I forget where we're getting off topic with that before. Yeah, okay. I was just asking <laughs> about that. But you were telling me about your first night at uh, camp. Oh, yeah. Oh, how yeah. they were like ordering you around and stuff. And so... You're getting like all your issued stuff. And that first night they march you in circles while they bring one person out at a time. There's probably a room about the size of two classrooms with all these desks put in there. Mind you, the whole time they're telling you you can't fall asleep. At this point, it's like four in the morning. When they get there immediately, we're gonna be outside waiting for them and we're gonna start applying the stress right away. You're gonna adjust yourselves forward to where your toes are up to and even with that horse. One of the most intimidating aspects of joining the Navy is the arrival at boot camp. It's your first test in performing under pressure. Getting them in, getting them to comply, start listening to instruction, getting loud with them, putting, putting them under stress because from the very, very beginning, we need them to start making decisions and operating under a stressful environment. We'll get them running, we're gonna be loud with them, we're gonna line up, we're gonna start giving quick orders, quick, fast orders, very specific. We're gonna ask you as a grown-up, what's your shoe size? The goal tonight is honestly to get them through a process. We have what boils down to a four-step process. I'm gonna brief them initially, explain the expectations. You cannot make a phone call right where you're standing on this toe line. How to talk to us, how to stand, how to act, how to move. Get off the flag! And then we're going to get them in a ditty bag issue where they get their initial PT gear. So we're going to get them out of their civilian clothes. We're going to mail them home. We're going to put them in PT gear so they all look the same. We're going to height and weight them, make sure they're in the standards, and we're going to get them in for your analysis. So that's our mission. You no longer have personal space. Welcome to the United States Navy. And uh, they would march us in circles and then take us out for drug tests or whatever, like paperwork we had to fill out. But the whole time you're just marching in circles. And so, like, you're, like, delirious, like, walking around. Then you go into your actual first day of boot camp the next day, and then you can sleep that night. So and, you're just up. Mm -hmm. And so I remember fall, sitting in my rack, like, that first night where I actually got to sleep, and I was staring at the ceiling, and I'm like, oh, fuck, man, I got to do eight weeks of this. <laughs> eight <laughs> like, weeks of boot camp? Eight weeks. Damn. Or I think some places are 12. I think Marine Corps is 12. But... You're just sitting there thinking to yourself that first night, you're like, what did I get myself into? Like, if I would have just done this, this, and this, right? And slowly you break yourself into, and it does, a boot camp does a really good job of breaking you down and like building you back up where it brings it to the point where, um, like, I would say it's about three weeks in where you get to this point where um, you're like, okay, well, I can just put my head down and go through this. Like, it doesn't even matter anymore. Like, I'm so numb emotionally to this yelling that by, like, week three, yelling doesn't work on anybody. You're not cracking anybody with yelling anymore because they've been yelled at for three weeks. Yeah. So, like, everyone's emotionally strong enough to be able to deal with, like, okay, I'm putting my socks on. Yeah. Okay, I'm getting screamed at. All right, it's five in the morning. I can tell because my RDC just threw a trash can through the middle of the compartment to wake everybody up. 
like, okay. Like, everything's like calm under these stressful conditions. So they do like a really good job of that. And I think that's the one thing the military does better than anything is preparing people for stress, like being able to be calm under stress. Some people still don't ever acclimate to it, obviously, as with any job. Like some people just don't get good at their job. But I would say that's probably the biggest strength I got from it. And then my first night of deployment. Wait, do you ever build a connection with your commanders at boot camp? Or? Not till probably the last week. So you do this thing called battle stations at the end, which is like your last real like exercise that you do like as a group where they, you go through like all these like different things. It's like one of those things you can't really talk about what goes on in it. But it's like this whole night full of like simulations, right? And uh, I would say after that is like when you officially like you are a sailor now. Like, you, you're no longer a boot camp recruit. Like, you're actually, like, in the Navy now. And that's probably the first time that that facade ever really comes down. Still doesn't come down a lot, but, like, they'll, they'll talk to you like you're a person. Or they'll stop fucking with you. They'll stop playing mind games. Like, when I was in boot camp, they told us that Manny Pacquiao knocked out Floyd Mayweather. They lied the to Mayweather you? Mayweather Pacquiao fight was when we were in boot camp. And so I got out of boot camp thinking Floyd Mayweather got knocked out. That's just messed up. Like, just things like that. People said that because uh, it was LeBron's first year back with the Cavs. And uh, they said that LeBron lost in the first round of the Chicago that year. Like, shit like that. Where they'll stop doing that stuff to you. They'll stop playing mind games. Just like, the games. running joke was always that Jennifer Lopez died. Like, just things like that. Where, like, but also, you look at it and you're like, if me and you were in charge of a bunch of high schools, Right. And they were completely isolated from the world. You wouldn't do that. Might as well. Of course you would. Might as and, well. But it's in that in that setting, you're just like, oh my god, why are these guys picking on me? And so like <laughs> you realize eventually, like, oh no, that's just a that's just a dude fucking with me. That's just like, them having fun. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. You don't take it personally. Okay. Okay. I've always wondered about boot camp. That's cool. But you're gonna say the first night. First night of deployment was. Uh, just abject fear. Wait, so after boot camp, you went straight to deployment? You no, like after boot camp, I went to A school in Pensacola, which is just where you learn your job for a little bit. I was there for two months and then went to Norfolk, Virginia to my first command, which was the USS Wasp. But uh, the first night was really just fear, just because at that point, like I said, like, I was kind of in that supervisory role. And I hate being the guy that has to answer questions that they don't know the answer to. Like, I... I hate not knowing something when someone comes to me like for some sort of guidance or anything or some sort of information and I can't give that to them. That gives that gets me anxious. And so I, it was like imposter syndrome going on deployment. And I've got these young guys that according because I left for a deployment probably a year after I got to the boat. So we were sitting around doing exercises really for about a year before we actually went and did an actual mission. And so. Yeah, sure, to this guy who's been here for three months, like he may look to me like I'm the guy with the answers because I've been here for a year, but in truth, I don't really have that many more answers than you do, bro. So like, we both got to learn this on the fly. And so it was that sort of like anxiety of like, okay, what if, you know, what if this aircraft catches on fire and I don't know my job in order to put it out and I give someone bad information and then that person ends up hurt or killed. Like, that's, like, the thing where, like, I got anxious about that, that first night. It goes away after, like, your first real flight ops when you're on deployment. You're like, oh, it's not really that different than anything I've been doing. But it's just one of those things where you get, like, a sort of anxiety knowing that people are actually in your care now. 
whether you like it or not, whether I wanted to admit that I could just look at them and be like, well, no, that's just my coworker. I'm just telling him what to do. But like in the reality of things, that dude's going to do what you do regardless or do what you say regardless. So make sure that you come correct when you have to tell like, hey, I need you to get on this fire hose, go to that hose team, move in from this angle, get behind this bomb, put, you need to put water on this bomb because this cooks off in this sort of time. Like if I don't know the cook off time, then you know that 10 seconds before he can put water on it, it might go off, you know? Hmm. So you got to know your cook off times for every single missile that, you know, this plane might be having. It's just things like that where it's that information that you got to keep in your head and like be able to keep a level head if shit ever were to hit the fan. How long did it take you to adapt to living on a ship? On the ship? Uh, <laughs> you never really adapt. <laughs> um, That's wild to me. But uh, I would say first night that I could get really a good night's sleep, a month. How but, big is this ship? Uh, so I know our flight deck is 844 feet long and that's pretty much the further or most forward and most aft that you can get. So about, yeah, about the size of a football field or now 300 feet of football field. So, whoa. So it's like three football fields yeah. essentially. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And, uh, no, shit, no, how I many people were on the ship? Um, about 4,000 at a time. <laughs> I mean, I know our flight deck division, we probably had 40, and that was just one division. We had four divisions just in the air department, so do what you will with that. But um, nah, about 4,000 people when we're fully loaded. All right, but, let's, talk, let's talk about the positives. Like, I imagine you got to travel the world. Oh, absolutely. I've been to, uh, I've been to Spain. I've been to Greece, Brazil. I lived in Japan for two years. Uh, yeah, and I've been to Singapore. Like, yeah, it's been awesome. So uh, do you still live on the ship when you go to these places? Or do you- yeah, and so there's a, it can be a bit of both. So my first, I would say, six months, I lived on the ship, went to sleep on the ship every night, even though we were in port, because I didn't have a place to stay, like, in town. And then after that, we rented a house. Uh, me and a couple guys, like, went in on a house, and then you know, paid out of pocket for that. But once I got to Japan, they gave us like pretty much what you pretty much a college dorm. And so like I had a roommate and then there was a room over, we shared a bathroom, same, pretty much the same setup as Linwood. And so that, that was free. We got free housing for that. But also if you were like a certain ranker above, or if you were married, which is why you see so many military marriages at a young age, if you're married, they'll give they'll pay for your housing. Oh, so that's why you see all these kids that are like 18, 19, 20 being like, "Okay, I'm getting married," which you know, in hindsight, that never works out. Like I'm trying to tell you guys, don't do very it. Very few of them I've ever seen work out. I can count on one hand probably. What was it like being in these different countries? Um, it a lot of them really give you an appreciation for the states, and a lot of places make you hate the United States, like. For instance, Japan, right? I lived there for two years. I never once got an order wrong. What does that mean? Like, if I went out to eat and ordered food, never got it wrong for two years. Like, things like that. And, like, the customer service and, like, the just overall respect 
that everybody has in Japan. Like, it's so ingrained in their culture. Like, for instance, um, like, they always respect their elders in their culture. Like, that's not, like, a stereotype. That's really true. So, for instance, if your parents become the age that they should be retired and shouldn't be living on their own, you don't put them in a nursing home. You put them in your home. And you take care of them. Or, say, you get in a car accident, right? Whether it's your fault or not, if that person's hurt, it's customary that you pay for their medical bills because they're the one that's in pain. Hmm. Like, things like that. But also, it's incredibly strict. Like, for instance, the DUI limit, I think, is .03. So you can't drink and drive. You can't. You can't. And if you drink and drive, you're going to, like, prison prison. Like, work camp. Like, you're going to go out there and break rocks for 12 hours that. and come in. Okay. And so it's because there's also, like, that it's so punitive over there. Like, there's plenty. I think it was, there was a stat that American armed forces in Japan it's like less than 5% of the population, but accounts for like a majority of the crime. Like that's, that's the disparity that you're working with there. Hmm. And it's like military people who you would think is like, you know, oh, you're so disciplined. They're supposed to like, you know, be doing the right thing all the time. But I promise you, there's a lot of dumb motherfuckers that were in the military. <laughs> like I was one of them. I did plenty of wild shit when I was in, but like oh, a majority of a country's population almost <laughs> is you know, U.S. Like, we would, you know, you'd hear a story, and they would lock down the whole base, too, if it happened. So, for instance, in Okinawa, I think it was, like, this Marine got drunk, stole a cab, and I think he, I think he stabbed the cab driver. And because that happened, no armed forces in Japan could drink alcohol for a month, and everyone was restricted to base. You could not leave base because it's something some guy in Okinawa did. Because that's how fragile that relationship is because the Americans are fucking up so much over there. Why are we over there? So that's a whole other can of worms. Uh, it's called like the Status of Forces Agreement. And pretty much after World War II, because the Japanese army and navy got so out of control, what the allies did in the treaty was basically said, all right, you guys can have, it's called the NDF, the National Defense Force, which is this very limited, like, kind of pseudo-military that's under our control, that we tell the NDF what to do. And we will put our bases in your country and kind of act as your security, but you guys can't build an army up again because the last time you guys did that, this happened. Oh. And so that happened from that treaty, and that's why we're still there today. Uh, do they treat you right and everything? They do. I mean, there's obviously you have your detractors like with everywhere. I mean, there's people out here that don't like the military because mm-hmm. they think it stands for something else. But uh, I mean, for the most part, like Japanese people treat us great. Like I've never been outwardly wronged by any Japanese person <laughs> like in two years. But you know, I got you know arguments and fights with people on the base all the time. Yeah. But I'll go out in the town, and no one would mess with me. Like they were just incredibly nice people. I love it out there. I love the culture so much. What kind of food do you eat out there? I mean, they do a lot of Americanized stuff. I mean, uh. they think they think Americans love mayonnaise, so they put mayonnaise on everything. <laughs> you know? I would like you have to outwardly go out and tell them like no mayonnaise on stuff. Like for me, I hate it. So I would be like, yeah, no mayonnaise, and they'd be like, okay, some mayonnaise. I'd be like, no, 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 no mayonnaise. But I mean, the food's great. A lot of uh. 
a lot of there's like a lot of these little steakhouses where you cook the meat at your own table. So you actually have like a little grill in front of you. I think you I've seen restaurants meat. like that. Yeah, no, that, that stuff's really cool. I mean, you got to season I, it too. I guess. Yeah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> what, what are they doing? Almost like what are you paying for? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, there's a lot of experimental food out there that I had to try. I'm a real picky eater. Uh, so, you eat sushi. I love sushi, man. Was it good out there? Oh, yeah. Oh, really I, I, that shit was fresh. But too. it was like, but it's so fresh, but it's also so simple. Like, you come to the States and you see like all the like toppings and all this stuff on there. They don't do that over there. It's so simple, but it's so fresh that it's like the fish like almost melts in your mouth. Yeah, my, my mouth's out of water. Yeah, oh, man. But, uh, <laughs> but now, nah, and I mean, they still got like your McDonald's, your Subways, there's KFCs out there, Taco Bell's out there. What was Brazil like? Uh, Brazil was, uh, we were only there for five days. I think it was five days, but um, it was it was an experience because you see that big. This is where I talk about like things that make you miss America. So we were able to go. It's called Liberty, pretty much, but it was just like when we were off work, we were able to go to like this strip on Copacabana Beach, and that was like it. They were like, "Do not go anywhere else unless you're going to the Christ the Redeemer statue," which we did. But oh, the, the big one like mm-hmm. that. And so Copacabana Beach was like pretty much like Miami almost. That's what it felt like. Uh, like everyone was upbeat, happy, chilling, like having fun. And then, oh, sorry, but uh, <laughs> driving to the Christ the Redeemer statue, you drive through like all those like favelas, right? Like that's what, because it's at the top of the mountain. And so you're driving to the top of this mountain and you're looking out. You're just seeing all these houses stacked on top of each other. Exactly like the Call of Duty map, bro. That's, like, what, that's what I was thinking of. And... Like, it gives you a sense for, like, god damn, like, there's all this, like, richness and prosperity over here, but you take a 10-minute drive, and it's, like, poverty, like, I had never seen, like, with my own eyes. Like, yeah, you see it on TV, but till you actually feel it, till you smell it, till you, like, really see, like, real-life people. Like, that guy's not in a TV screen. That guy's really, like, got three people on his moped right now. Like, shit like that, where you're just, like... Oh, wow. And they ain't I'm, doing that shit for fun. And I'm just here, like, visiting. Like, I'm just passing through. And they're probably looking at me like, you know, fuck that guy. But, <laughs> I mean, that's, like, their everyday life. And you realize that a lot of, like, I'm looking out, and there's probably, like, a million-plus people that, like, from my view of the mountain, probably, like, a million people. And so many of those people are just going to have zero chance. And so it makes you, like, really appreciate when you come home to the States and there's, like, a lot of things that, like, obviously this country is far from perfect. Mm -hmm. But where you sort of have that kind of pride in your country a little bit more, like, no matter how pissed off you may be getting at, like, whatever's going on in the political world, there's still, like, is that sort of American dream hope that you can have. Like with this podcast, right? Like you have a hope that this can like be something, like be something big and like prosper. But like so many of those people just got no chance, especially in the modern world. That's real. I mean, really, and it's a lot of things I didn't think about until I left the Navy and like really sat down with my own thoughts and. Like, cause at that time I was worried about like, yo, let's go get fucked up somewhere and go have a good time and party. We're in Brazil. Like, I'm not trying to depress myself. <laughs> like, I'm in, I'm in Rio. Like, let's Did go to party? a club. Did you turn up? Oh yeah. And it was fine. And like, 
you know, those people have a great time and it was fun everywhere we went. Like Singapore was the same way though, where it's like that disparity of like the uber rich and then like the migrant society because like Singapore, it's, I don't know the exact split, but it's usually, it's like a split between like British people, the Muslim population and Indians. And like, it's like those three and I think Chinese as well. But um, it's like those four populations and then like they're so like class divided. Like class division is so real in other places. Yeah, people like, systemic racism is so real in other places. That's just crazy. Mm-hmm. There's so many wars that have been caused in other countries just because mm-hmm. of like classes. Yeah. I think I had been on three continents before my 21st birthday. And it's just one of those things where I look back on it and I was like, I really didn't appreciate it when I had it. But so many life experiences that you get just from doing it. Like, obviously, you look at it and you're thinking nothing more than just like, oh, I'm partying. Like, I'm out here, you know, international balling pretty much. But the things that you see don't register with you until you leave. and Or like until like you come home. And you're just like, huh, okay. I'm so used to, like in Japan, like little things, right? So it's disrespectful to hand something with one hand in Japan, right? So like I, if I were to hand you this letter, I would do it like this. You with have two to. hands. But don't take it with one hand. You got to take it with two. Yeah, something like that. Or like you go to a checkout counter and you put your card in this little basket and you push it over. And the she takes it from the basket and like handles it gently and then gently puts it back in the basket and hands it to you. Like things like that where you're so used to like these norms of one place that coming home kind of feels weird. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it's like, but I could still think of all those things like off the top of my head and like I still catch myself doing some things reflexively. Like doing that after you talk to somebody. Like Yeah, you lived I, there for two years. Mm-hmm. So you were acclimated. Mm-hmm. I was super acclimated to it. And I would come home, I'd be pissed off that everybody was rude all the time. Like, <laughs> But yeah, and yeah, man, I I love Japan so much. I would love to go back there. I wouldn't live there again, but I'd go back there for sure. I just got one last question. Did, were you on the ship when there were any big storms on the ocean? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, actually, I think, what year did Hurricane Harvey happen? That was right before Brazil. So Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria happened, and we were in transit. We were going from... Our home port was shifting from Norfolk, Virginia to uh, Sasebo, Japan. So we had to go around the southern tip of South America and around the back and then go to Japan. And that's where we were going to station from then. And uh, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria happened. And we were right there, uh, like by Puerto Rico. And so we had to do hurricane relief efforts for a few months. And uh, yeah, that's another one of those things. Oh, where, I bet that was bad, sad. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but... um. Those storms, like during that time, like you talk about, so the term sea legs is very real. Uh, if you don't have your sea legs, like it's hard for you to walk around the ship. Like you kind of get used to the motion of everything. And it's actually kind of funny because when you come back from what we would call an underway, anytime you go out to sea and come back, you kind of walk funny on the ground, on solid ground, because you're so used to like, and your legs are so toned because all day you're just pushing back and forth. It's like you're pushing on a gas pedal and pulling back. Because you're just trying to like stay upright. Like the worst would be working out in the gym. Like you're trying <laughs> to bench and then the ship dips down. And so like now this thing just. And then you like, got to like time it like with the way up. But uh, yeah, it's also the best sleep you'll ever have. Rocking. I would say. Yeah, because it's like you're rocking in a hammock oh, all bet. night. I mean, people rolled out 
of racks. I've seen that. Uh, like, uh, like you've got pretty much a bunk bed with an extra bunk on top, and there's these straps that you have to put on if you're in the top rack. And if you don't put them up, you can roll out. Like I remember this one kid. He was like, he was like brand new. Man. He was like 18, and uh, I think it was my last underway. So I was like already like tired over this shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he like fell out. I watched it happen. I was sitting there. I was watching a movie on my phone in my rack, and uh, he just rolls off the top because the ship hit a wave. And bro, <laughs> he smacked it because it's like it's like cement floors. And so he just smacked his shit. And I just lean out. I'm like, you good? He's like, I feel like my red. I was like, yeah, you better put your straps up and shut my shit. Like, I was like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and, uh, but no, nah, man, uh, being out on the ocean, like during the storm, though, is pretty cool. Uh, launching and recovering helicopters is not very cool uh, when it's rocking and shit like that. But um, nah, it's one of those things that makes it fun almost. Like that danger element when that's the other thing, right? So, your job may seem super cool to like other people. Like you've seen videos of me like doing that stuff, right? Yeah, you be out there. Yeah, yeah. And so like that may look really cool, like on video, but I'm so bored in the video, like <laughs> because I'm so used to doing it. And so like you kind of almost need that sort of like crazy dangerous thing to like really get you back into like, oh, okay, like, oh, this yeah. is fun. <laughs> and um, so like yeah, like okay, a little sideways rain. I got to bring in this fifty three, which is like a helicopter, pretty much. That's a or it's like a bus with a giant rotor blade on top. That's pretty much what it looks like. And uh, and so you're like getting this wind like whipping into your face and like the rain's like going all over the place. You're like, okay, this is kind of fun. Let's get my blood rushing a little bit. <laughs> but uh, nah, man. Um, storms are fun out to see. I do, I, do lo- I do love me a good storm. You ever see sharks or whales? Or- all the time. Uh, we had a pod of dolphins follow us uh, after that 2016 deployment. So we went from the Middle East up into Europe and then across the Atlantic. And there was like this pot of dolphins that like followed us almost like from Europe all the way to the States. Not all the way, but like they followed us for a few days. What? Yeah. Stuff like that is like really cool when you see like real wildlife. Like we saw penguins. So penguins in uh, the bottom of South America. Wow. Passed around. uh, (laughs) They were just chilling. Yeah. They were just swimming. Popping. Popping up. Yeah. You probably saw sea lions and stuff. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I'm from the Bay Area, though. So. Oh, yeah, that's foreign to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, man, it's a bunch of wildlife. Saw whales, all that stuff. Sea tornadoes, those things are cool. Sea tornado. Yeah, I don't know what their like legit name is, but yeah, it's a little tornado on the water. No, oh, man. Yeah, that's like just cool stuff. You seen some big waves? I never saw anything too crazy because they wouldn't have us go through it. So you, we would purposely maneuver outside of storms and all that until. Pretty much so sailing out to sea, like there's all these little grids. And so you would have to have permission to go into each grid. So you would go into a holding pattern in whichever grid until it was time to go to the next one. And so they would purposely chart out our path so that we would get out of the way of like crazy storms. Uh, But I mean, there were still some that uh, if the waves were too high, they wouldn't let anybody outside the skin of the ship. So they would hatch down everything. And then like, yeah, you'd see water like going over the top of the flight deck. Mind you, like. This thing's huge. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you've seen how big like carriers and shit are. But uh that's wild water getting up that high. Mm-hmm. It's cause the dip, and so it just slaps at the bottom and the wave crashes over the top. Gee. You, you ever I deal can... with pirates? 
No, um, we did. Well, we did like anti-piracy operations, but we never like did like any of the Captain Phillips shit. Like, no. But my ship was in Captain Phillips in the actual movie. That's at your ship. End, at the end, when it's pulling away, that's my ship. <laughs> that's it's, dope. Yeah, but uh, nah, man, I didn't get to do any of the cool Captain Phillips shit though. That would have been really cool. Before we wrap this up, I know you you know you're working on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Let's let's plug that podcast. Yeah, so. It's going to be with me and my boy Juan Herrera once hopefully all this COVID stuff dies down and we're able to be around to actually really collaborate with with each other again. It's going to be called In the Clinch. Uh, it's going to be an MMA podcast, uh, kind of going like gym to gym, learning or really just trying to educate real fight nerds. Uh, it's it's built for fight nerds. It's not really built for like people who are like casually into it, but like if you really are into a certain martial art, we hope to tackle that martial art and kind of do a deep dive with someone who actually practices it at a high level. Um, also the XFL STL talk show, uh, Wednesday nights on Facebook watch at seven central. How's that going? It's going good. Uh, it's going good. We're just trying to, you know, stay afloat, trying to keep the XFL news pumping until we can really get back to 2022 when they're supposed to kick off. Okay. And then, yeah, man, just thank you for having me on again. It's been a blast, man. man. We got some good content. (laughs) It's a blast. Yeah, man. I appreciate it, bro. No problem. I appreciate you pulling up, bro. Campaigning hard like I'm POTUS I don't know why they just trying I'm hearing these niggas but vocus Vision is clear and I'm focused Changing my mind Heard a new voice Think that it's mine Reading the signs Think through the lines Get to the bank My money is straight Staying in line New jack with a new swing I'm changing the color like mood green Sun these niggas like UV Bladder right shitting like ooh wee I'm dripping this off of the mink I'm off the chain to keep them link I'm clearing my pineal gland I jump off the roof in the land